Trial Brief with your host, David Otto. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of The Trial Brief. If you're like me, we're getting over the election, presidential election, and I'm sitting here and wondering, wondering why, for more than two centuries, we, the United States, elects the most powerful public official, the president, through this arcane, complex process that's been widely criticized, that people don't understand, that doesn't conform to democratic principles, democratic principles that we as a nation have publicly championed, uh, a process that is so ill understood by many Americans and never imitated by any other country or by any other state of the United States. So why, after more than two centuries of reform efforts, do we still have the Electoral College? Why do we make it possible for the winner of the popular vote to lose the electoral count and not become president? An outcome that violates the basic tenets of electoral democracy. And that's happened five times in our history, and most recently, as we know, in 2016. And it's come close to happening on other occasions, including in 2004. So why do we still have the Electoral College? Well, luckily for us today, Professor Alexander Kesar is here. And Professor Kesar is the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He's an historian, and he has specialized in the exploration of historical problems that have contemporary policy implications. His book, The Right to Vote, The Contested History of Democracy in the United States, that he wrote in 2000, was named the best book in U.S. history by both the American Historical Association and the Historical Society. It was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Los Angeles Times Book Award. A significantly revised and updated edition of The Right to Vote was published in 2009. Professor Kesar is an author or co-author of a number of scholarly texts, and I will attach some of those links to this podcast episode. So I encourage you to, to take a look and read uh, about Professor Kesar and read some of those works. Professor Kesar, it's a real privilege to have you here today, and welcome to the Trial Brief. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you. You know, this is really uh, special for me because when I was in college, I studied under Dr. Judith Best. She was a political science professor and was a leading scholar on the Electoral College. And she had published a book around the time I was in school, and we, we spent a lot of time on it. We had many, many hours of of discussions about the Electoral College. And what's what's funny about it was this this was at a time, 1982, 1983, you know, through 1986, where the Electoral College wasn't sexy. You know, it wasn't very interesting. There was nothing sexy about it, right? The, it, you know, there was no controversy. Uh, there hadn't been an issue of a president winning uh, the popular vote and losing the Electoral College in, in the recent span. And it just wasn't a thing. But, you know, it was more of an academic, scholarly type of exercise as opposed to a real-life experience. But I was interested in it at the time. And, and from that point on, I have read 
extensively on the Electoral College. And, and there's a lot published pros and cons about the Electoral College. The debate has been hashed out. You know, those books have been written. But Professor, your book really goes to the question, why do we still have the Electoral College? And it's a fantastic book, and I can't wait to speak with you about it. What prompted you to write this book? First, I would say that I agree with you that at times like the late 1980s, even into the 1990s, the Electoral College is not particularly sexy or discussed subject. Although, you know, as I was to learn, as recently as the 1970s, there had been a constitutional amendment to abolish the Electoral College that Congress took very seriously and in 1970 came close to doing so. But the Electoral College is this odd institution, but that was sort of oblique to the major concerns about American democracy. And here, here I can acknowledge, uh, you know, I'll confess something that I don't often like pointing to, which is that when I wrote the right to vote, the first edition of the right to vote, I made no mention of the Electoral College because it didn't seem particularly germane. I think that what led me into the subject, on the one hand, the subject became more prominent after the 2000 election, or at the 2000 election, when for the first time in more than a century, we had a close, long winner election. Gore won the popular vote, but he did not win the Electoral College. And that called attention to the issue. And then the other thing which struck me, even at the time, was how rapidly debate about the Electoral College faded after the 2000 election. Although, again, as I subsequently learned during the research, pundits were almost unanimous in the 1980s and 1990s that if we ever got a, quote, wrong winner election, that the institution would be abolished. But I was very struck how little was said about electoral college reform in the wake of the 2000 election. You may remember there was a lot of attention paid to hanging chairs and technology, and some attention paid to felon disenfranchisement. Very little was said about the Electoral College. That also sent me to wondering. A few years later, I was asked to review and review George Edwards' very fine book on the Electoral College, Why the Electoral College is Bad for America. And it is a book precisely of a different genre, and there are many of these, and my book is not one of these. It is of the genre of Electoral College, good or bad. George Edwards thinks it's bad, and he makes a very powerful case for it. But I could not help but think, well, if the case is this powerful, why do we still have it? But that set me to thinking about this really over a period of years, on and off, while doing other things. And I think the last couple of steps in my evolution towards saying, I I think I should address this in a book, were that I did start doing some research, and I discovered when I was doing so, first, there had been an enormous number of attempts to reform or get rid of the Electoral College. This wasn't the 20th century or early 21st century preoccupation. This went back went back to 1800. There had been a lot of attempts. I also discovered that public opinion polls, to the extent that we have them, which is only since the 1940s, have indicated that a majority of the American people have always wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. Uh, on balance, the bird replaced it with a with the national popular vote. And then I think the third step was that the standard political science or politics literature on the subject offer a very simple and plausible explanation for why we still have the electoral college, which was the small states won't let us change it because the small states 
enjoy an incremental benefit. They get more electoral votes per capita than do larger states, and that they would they would block any attempts at reform. Again, it took you know some poking around, but not too much for me to realize that simply was not true. We have this institution that doesn't match our values, that the people would like to get rid of, that political leaders have tried to get rid of for a long time, and the conventional explanation for why it had endured simply fell apart when you look closely at it. So I sort of set up an inquiry on my part, and a number of years later, I produced a book. One of the things is the complexity of it. As a trial lawyer, I'm a trial lawyer by trade, and one of the things I'm trained to do is to really condense complex issues into you know something that's very understandable for a jury, whether it's medicine, technology, uh, complicated fact patterns. And over the years, when you know some people know that I you know I've read a lot about the subject, and they ask me to summarize it pretty quickly. What what is the electoral college, real quick? And just just give me a, a summary of this, and I can't do it. Right? I mean, it's, it's a a very convoluted process that. It is very, very difficult for for people to understand, and I, and, and that that's a big part of it as well. I think. Yes. No. I mean, I couldn't tell you the number of times, you know, over the last six months or even longer before the book was published, when I told people what I was working on, and people were saying, "Well, so you know, the question is, why do we still have the electoral college?" They said, "What's the answer?" <laughs> and you know, and I was sort of scratch my head, and I said, "If I could give you the answer in two minutes, I wouldn't have to write a book." <laughs> there you go. There you go. And you know what's uh, also interesting from your book? There, there were a whole lot of takeaways from the book. I can't go into all of them, obviously, but one of the takeaways, as you mentioned previously, was that there were more resolutions introduced in Congress to abolish the Electoral College than any other topic. Thousands of them. I thought that was amazing. To abolish or to significantly reform. For most of the 19th century, and even for a good chunk of the 20th century, the most common reforms that were being proposed left the basic structure of it, but wanted to abolish winner-take-all as an allocation of electoral votes. They wanted to create district systems or proportional systems, and they usually wanted to get rid of human electors as well, but they were willing to leave the rest of the system in place. And then, obviously, the national popular vote was another one. So... Yes, by my count, it's about close to a thousand. And the other thing was that I didn't realize that the Electoral College was unpopular really from the start. It's not a new phenomenon, right? For one thing, it didn't function very well even during its first decade. Jefferson and the Democratic Republicans were adamant that winner-take-all was a disaster. The Constitution leaves it to the states to decide how to allocate the electors, whether it should be by district or using winner-take-all, which is called the general ticket at that time. In many cases, state legislatures just chose electors by themselves. There was no popular vote, and the Constitution doesn't require a popular vote. Jefferson and others were really adamant by the end of the 1790s that that ought to go throughout this period, although he spoke out really about it mostly when he was retired from politics. But James Madison, the the foremost shaper of the Constitution was calling for very, very serious reforms of the system in the 1820s. And he even commented that he thought that the institution was so flawed that it bore bore the marks of haste and fatigue. Because the idea really came up 
and was adopted only at the very end of the Constitutional Convention. And basically what what Madison was saying was we were, we were tired and we were desperate to get out of there, so we didn't really think this through very carefully. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and the advent of political parties, it seems, played such a big role and a, and a really exposed, I think, those flaws that you, you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. The remarkable fact that the men who crafted the Constitution did not think that politics would be conducted by political parties. It was not in their frame of reference. Yet within a decade or a little more, it was happening. I mean, one problem that it created, they did solve, which was that, you know, in the original design of the presidential elections, each elector voted for two candidates for president. And the person who won the most votes became president, and the person who got the second most votes became vice president. It was kind of like a student council election. That system collapsed in a crisis in the 1800 election, and it collapsed in part because parties had formed, and different factions or parties were putting forward both presidential and vice presidential candidates. And the 12th Amendment was written and was ratified in 1804 precisely to deal with that problem. And it, and it did deal with that problem, and in so doing, it solidified the position of political parties, because what it led to was the creation of tickets for the presidency and the vice presidency. The other problem which showed itself very early was that states were changing around how they chose their electors from one election to the next. And it was chaotic. And the political parties that were dominating states were using it in a manipulative way. The classic example, although there were earlier examples as well, was in 1800 when Adams and Jefferson were running against each other once again. Adams had won in 1796. He won by three electoral votes, one of which came from Jefferson's state of Virginia. And the People who ran the Virginia's government were adamant that they should use a district system to choose electors, and that's what Virginia had done. But when it got to the 1800 election, they didn't want Jefferson to lose to Adams again. Adams had won one electoral vote, so the uh, Virginia legislature decided to switch to winner take all within a policy. It's very interesting when you read the law. The law has a preamble that says, We're really sorry to do this. And we don't think this should be the way the system will work. But since other states are doing it, we're going to do it too. So they adopted winner take all. Not surprisingly, Massachusetts responded similarly. That really inaugurated decades of chaos about presidential elections, which many different political leaders and groupings tried to solve by passing a constitutional amendment. And they came very close to doing it in the early 1820s, but they failed. I want to jump to the Civil War, post-Civil War era and the the disenfranchisement of of African-Americans in the South. Can you talk about the the role that played on the Electoral College? Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a very, very important part of the story. It's far more important than I realized when I started out in the book. And it it may be, in some respects, I think it was one of the original contributions of the book. It's well known that the South benefited from the Electoral College when there was slavery because of the prefix vote. They got members of Congress and thus electoral votes for three-fifths of their slaves who were not voting. So basically, white Southerners got a little a notable amount of extra influence in presidential elections through that system. 
the Civil War, in theory, ended that. It ended slavery, and the 14th and 15th Amendments that required African-Americans to be enfranchised. But that really only lasted for about 10 or 15, maybe up to 25 years, depending on the state of the South. At that point, African-Americans are disenfranchised once again. What that meant was that the white South was benefiting, starting in about 1890 and running through the 1960s, was benefiting from what amounted to a five-fifths clause. African-Americans counted fully for representation in Congress and for electoral college votes, but they did not vote. They were not allowed to vote. Obviously gave the South, this is the white South, disproportionate influence in presidential elections, but it also meant that the South was ferociously opposed to adopting a national popular vote. Because if a national popular vote had been adopted, they would have lost that extra power. They would have lost that significant amount of extra influence. So the South became a block opposed to electoral college reform at the end of the 19th century. It had been true before the Civil War also, but at the end of the 19th century, it became a block, and that lasted into the 1960s, uh, late 1960s and 1970s. Indeed, I hope I'm not running too far ahead of the story, the closest we've ever come to adopting a national popular vote was in 1969 and 1970. In 1969, the House of Representatives approved the constitutional amendment to abolish the electoral college by an 82% vote. It then went to the Senate, where the long and complicated story, a historical moment that was filled with tensions between the North and the South and tensions around ending white supremacy. And the proposal to abolish the electoral college and replace it with the national popular vote was killed by a filibuster in 1970 in the Senate. And that filibuster was led by Southern senators. Yeah, very interesting. You, you jumped to 1969 because from the book, you really do a great job of, um, I like how you broke down the errors, you know, because they all made sense. When you brought us into the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and into the 70s, you felt this really important shift. There was, there was a shift from even, even small states were supporting the popular vote. There's a number of things going on in the 40s and 50s, but one of them is, is I think, a broader ideological arc which is that there was more and more embrace of small-D democratic values. One person, one vote was not the law of the land in 1940 or 1920. And, you know, one big step in that is that the Supreme Court ruled for state legislatures and for uh, the U.S. Congress. That had to be the rule governing uh, elections. But beyond that, I think World War II and the post-war period led to an embrace of democratic values, which influenced a lot of political leaders. Again, as you, as you know from the book, the flag bearer of the proposal for the national popular vote in the 1940s was William Langer, who was from this very small state of North Dakota. His support of it was turned over, or, or one person who joined it was John Castoria of the small state of Rhode Island. And the book contains this dialogue in the Senate between John Pastore and John Kennedy, in which Pastore is insisting on democratic values, and Kennedy, who had his eye on the presidency, was, was less enamored with the idea of changing electoral systems. Yeah, and speaking of, I mean, the 1960 election, I don't even know 
if we know who won the popular vote still? I think we don't and we never will. There, there were just a number of things happening in the 40s and 50s and just, you know, in addition to this democratic ethos. One was that the split between the, the northern and the southern wings of the Democratic Party was becoming so severe that there were numerous threats on the part of southern Democratic electors to not vote for the party's candidates, you know, to be faithless. That was disconcerting to people. Didn't happen very much, but the threat was always there. And then in 1948, there was the fact uh, that there were four candidates for president, but one of whom, Strom Thurmond, representing a region, did win a lot of electoral votes. And he thought that by doing that, he might be able to get the North to back off promoting civil rights. And that same path was adopted by George Wallace in 1968. There were a number of things feeding into the discontents with the electoral college. The parties are both ideological hybrids at that point, and people from both parties did not want to see George Wallace as the kingmaker. When you talk about the, you know, the elections in 2000 and 2016, where you know we've elected a president who you know didn't win the popular vote, the questions of legitimacy are amplified and become really divisive. It was interesting in the book, you, you, you pointed out, this is nothing new again, right? I mean, we can go back to John Quincy Adams, who was elected by the House of Representatives, who he was called many things, and, right. and legitimate was not one of them, right? And Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, the, the same thing. So it's nothing new. It's not a new phenomenon, uh, that issue, but it, it is an argument, obviously, against the Electoral College. In any electoral system, in any society or state, the question is, what establishes the legitimacy of power? And the claim of the Electoral College is that this has been the system that was adopted in the Constitution, and thus what it dictates is okay and can't be illegitimate. On the other hand, the popular notions of legitimacy basically are to say that legitimacy comes from the people and comes from the outcome of the election and comes from the popular vote. For most people, it's the popular vote trumps, pardon the term, the traditional institution. I mean, that it's, that's the way we establish legitimacy for every other election that we have. Yeah, and I'd love to get your take on what's going on with Texas and Georgia. It's interesting to me because Texas and Georgia, I don't know how you would characterize them, whether they were purple and whether they go blue. That may be the death knell of winner-take-all. The notable thing about the last 40 years, and this is unusual in U.S. history, uh, partly because our party systems have, you know, have, have, again, have most of the time been hybrids, but, but now our, our party structures are much more ideological. But for the last 40 years, most members of one party, the Democrats, favor electoral college. Not all. That's to be said, not all. Neither Al Gore nor Bill Clinton was a great fan of electoral college reform, but but most Democrats, an increasing number of Democrats, favor electoral college reform, but Republicans have been staunchly against it. Sometimes, as I point out in the book, in some instances when they thought that, that having electoral college reform, say switching to a district system um, in some states might work for them, then they've been in favor of it. You know, they would like to switch to a district system in California. In terms of national reform or national popular vote, they have been absolutely firmly against any changes. So the, the question that raises itself, or that raises up to me, is what could produce a change in this logjam? I mean, the current Congress, despite 
however unhappy I and many other people may be about this recent election, where there wasn't the wrong winner, but the gap between the popular vote and the electoral vote was really striking. It's true that uh, the Republican claims that less than 100,000 votes in key states had turned the other way, uh, Donald Trump would have been reelected. On the other hand, he lost the popular vote by 70 million. So there's a strong sense on the part of many people that this system has got to go. But Republicans look at those same numbers and say, that's proof that we need to keep it. My own notion was that this might change one avenue to ending this logjam would be if the Republican Party either divides, which I think is not out of the question. I wouldn't guarantee it, but I don't think it's out of the question. Or even if it doesn't split, if Republicans start losing states that they counted on. Well, it happened in Georgia, but it did not happen in Texas. I think my view is that if it happened in Georgia and Texas, then Republicans might start rethinking their commitment the winner-take-all. The outcome of the 2020 election where some red states, notably Georgia, but also states like Arizona, which have been purple for a while, but they can no longer count on those states. That may shift some of their thinking, but I don't think enough has changed to change the stances of many Republicans. And Republicans held on to the state legislatures, and they held on to their seats in Congress. Yeah. So you think we're we're going to be stuck with this for quite some time? Let's do it this way. I, you know, I wouldn't invest my pension money to bet on electoral reform coming in the next five years or six years. But I'm also struck when I look at the historical record, the frequency with which predictions about how politics and partisan alignments are going to run for the next 10 years, the predictions are very often wrong. And things can change, and things can change fairly quickly. My favorite example, or at least one of my favorite examples of this in terms of things changing quickly, is that in 1956, when the issue of switching to a national popular vote came up in the Senate, there were 17 votes in favor of a constitutional amendment. Just 17 votes out of 100 in 1956. When it came to the floor of the Congress in 1970, it had the support of 57 senators. That's only 14 years later, and that's an enormous shift. So I don't know. I wouldn't rule it out. And I think part of the reason I focused on parties and what might happen to the Republican Party is that the two periods when we have come closest to electoral college reform, one is this period between 1815 and 1825, and the other is in the late 60s and early 1970s, where both periods when the party systems were in flux, they weren't stable. There's only one party in the United States, basically from 1815 until 1926, although a new party system was starting to take shape. And in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, things were pretty chaotic. The southern wing of the Democratic Party was beginning its long march into the Republican Party. And the Republican Party was becoming something very different than it had been in the 1950s, 40s, and 30s. Parties changes in the identification of parties and the ideology of parties and the lineups of parties, I think, can create openings for structural reforms. Mm -hmm. To sum up your answer to why we still have the Electoral College, you break it down into three parts, right? Complexity, partisanship, and the legacy of slavery. And when we talk about the complexity part of it, 
reform is extremely difficult because I don't think you can reform one feature of the Electoral College without really affecting the whole thing. I think it's that kind of monster. That's exactly right. And that's the people discovered again and again. And that was something which surprised me. It took me a while to figure that out. But pieces were so interlocked. For example, if you eliminated winner-take-all and forced states to use a district system, that would lessen the power of large states that had become accustomed to, you know, to being able to cast big blocks of electoral votes. Right? They didn't want to do that unless in the contingent system, the contingent electoral system, which is what happens if nobody wins the majority. And first half of the 19th century, people thought that that was going to happen very frequently. In fact, it hasn't happened since 1824. But in the contingent system gives disproportionate power to the small states. You couldn't reform either of those without getting agreement on both. And they came close, but they failed. You know, there were other dimensions of it. You know, also, as time went on, where another feature of this complexity of difficulty was that if you change just one part of it through a constitutional amendment, you would seem to be tacitly ratifying the existence of the, of the rest of these. That was another roadblock to reform. Can you get rid of human electors and just have the electoral votes can't automatic? Yes, you can, but you're really going to go to the trouble of having a constitutional amendment and leave the rest of the message system in place. Wow, this is great. And I, I tell you, the book is fantastic. I'm going to put a link where you can find the book. It is called, Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? It's Harvard University Press. Like I said, I've read a lot of books on the subject. This is very different, very, very well organized, and it, and it reads like a, like a story. And, and you, bring, you bring some of these historical figures to life, and you really bring a, a different dimension to this. And I, I thank you for that, and thank you for coming on, and I hope you have a, a very happy holiday. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I'm, of course, delighted that you like the book so much. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Break.